Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I have been so pleased to have the chance to preach here a couple of times, um, but not for a little while. So it is great to be with you, and I'm appreciative um, of Reverend Carl for going along with this idea I had. Both of us are serving growing congregations. Um, both of us have gone to two services, and we're trying to figure out how to do all of that and do it well. And um, so we are switching for these two weeks, uh, seeing each other's congregations over the course of the two Sundays. I've taken about 400 pictures of everything around here, all your signage. I think I took a picture of the bulletin board inside the bathroom. Um, <laughs> And uh, and then later um, in the summer, we're hoping that our staffs will have a chance to get together and talk with each other and learn and grow. So it's wonderful to, to be here, to be welcomed so beautifully by Laura. I see why you're in seminary. And, um, and just to get the chance to be with all of you. So I bring you greetings from the folks at the Washington Ethical Society and from Reverend Carl, who's down there with them right now. We, uh, I imagined passing each other on 270 as I drove north and he drove south. The congregation that I serve is not so different, of course, from this congregation. It's a little city mouse, country mouse, but we, um, we are a congregation of about 330 adults and about 120 children and youth. And, um, just like you, we meet on Sunday mornings and have special times throughout the year, special celebrations over the course of the year. One of my favorites is the baby dedications that we do. You, I imagine, use a ritual different than ours, but similar. A number of years ago, about three years ago now, I did a baby dedication in the congregation that I serve. And of course, I've done many since then, but that one always sticks in my mind in a particular way. I had to prepare for it for an unusually long time to kind of psych myself up for weeks in advance, not because I wanted to find the right words, we have the ritual pretty well down pat, but because I needed to practice how not to cry. Now, every baby dedication or baby naming makes me cry a little bit. It's the same as weddings. You know, it just brings out the moisture just right there behind your eyes waiting for you, right? In fact, I tend to cry more at happy events than at sad ones. I don't know if any of you are like that, happy criers, (laughs) It's the moments, I think, of love expressed so deeply that pulls at me. But it's not just because of the love expressed at those moments, not just because of the happiness that we feel. Those happy events, baby dedications, weddings, graduations, family reunions... They are both happy and more complex than that. I often think about that around weddings when I get to be around not just for the day itself, but for the planning and the rehearsal when I'm officiating at weddings. I I get to see the last-minute jitters and the worries leading up to the big day, not just that beautiful moment under a canopy of roses. 
And it gives me perhaps a unique perspective that weddings are both happy and also scary and even sad. When I'm officiating and preparing with couples, doing premarital counseling with them, I find that it's so important to acknowledge the complexity of feelings that we bring to occasions like that. The loss that might be experienced by families of origin who will never be the same again, not exactly after the people that they love are united in marriage. The fear that can be experienced by the couple even when they are sure it is just the right thing to do, yet still. And the loss as well. Marriage, after all, is a choice, a limiting of other possibilities, the closing of other doors. Having the chance to acknowledge with couples the depth of those feelings, the bigness of what they are preparing for, getting past the sort of wedding industrial complex that wants to tell you, first of all, it's mostly about the favors you choose, and second of all, you should only be feeling happy. Instead, having the opportunity to think about the realness of all that we feel. I experience that, too, all throughout the year at different moments of the year. This summer has been family reunion time for me. Perhaps it has been for you as well. Those those moments that we look forward to so much. I love to see my girls getting together with their cousins whom they haven't seen in 12 full months, but whom they appear to have a deep and immediate bond, mostly uh, centered around how much candy they can sneak behind their parents' backs. Cousins are great for that, it turns out. <laughs> And many of us experience perhaps the joy of anticipation or expectation with those family gatherings. And then you can have the family reunion hangover of sorts. It's kind of like the day after Christmas, you know, when you had expectations that weren't quite met. Occasionally a family interaction that didn't go as well as we had hoped or memories of reunions past that we didn't quite meet this time, people who weren't there this time around. Thinking back to that particular baby naming that I experienced a few years ago, there's a reason that that one stood out for me, that it was so important and also so difficult. The parents of this child had been open with the congregation about their journey toward adoption of the little girl who was being dedicated that day. I'll call her Melinda. She came into their family's lives as a very tiny baby, just a few days old. And I want to note before I go further that this is only their journey. In the congregation I serve, we have a number of adoptive parents, and I suspect that you do as well in this congregation. And each one of them would tell their story in a different way. So if adoption is part of your life or your friends' lives, I hope you will hear this as it is, as, as their story. Well, they brought this baby into their, came into their lives as a little tiny three-day-old and came to the congregation not, uh, not long after. 
And one way to read the story of Melinda's life and her readiness for this baby dedication when she was two after the adoption had gone through, one way to read that story is of pure triumph and joy. They passed through many hoops and tests. They convinced courts. And finally, after a couple of years, Melinda was legally adopted by this family who had loved her from the very start of her life. But that's not the only way to read the story. There's another way a way that this family asked me to honor in the baby dedication, which tells a story of loss, too. Because along with the joy of this new family that was being created, that really had been creating itself for some time and was being legalized and formalized at this baby dedication, welcomed formally into the family of the congregation, Along with that great joy was the sadness, the tragedy of a family that could not be. The parents in this case asked that in our desire to celebrate this new family, that we make sure not to forget about the family that wasn't, a family that perhaps some longed for. In this case, that experience was felt most acutely by the adoptive parents on the day that they headed to court for the termination of parental rights. The mother, in this case, is an avid Facebook user. We joke that if we haven't seen a post in the last 30 minutes, we should text to make sure everything is okay with her. You know, maybe she's gotten horribly lost or... um, And so she posted on Facebook, of course, that she was heading off to the court um, for this particular moment, the termination of parental rights, the moment that would make it possible for this child to become legally hers. I remember so distinctly in that post that she asked her friends to remember that this wasn't a hooray kind of day, but instead a day that called for compassion and care for all the people involved. It was a moment, she said, of loss, even though it was also one of the key moments in the adoptive parents' journey toward bringing Melinda legally into their family, something that gave them great joy. For me, the gift that this mother gave to the congregation was an awareness of the way that joy and loss are so often intertwined in our lives. You hear it, I think, during joys and sorrows in a congregation like yours that holds that ritual. People who come up and speak, just as we heard this morning, about the joy of a child going on a new adventure and the sorrow that the adventures in American Samoa... (laughs) The joy of newness, the sorrow of loss. Our whole lives intertwine those joys and sorrows with each other. What then do we offer in our tradition, in progressive tradition, in Unitarian Universalism, or in ethical culture, the humanist tradition that I serve in D.C.? What do we offer for these moments in our lives that are so full of everything? 
There's sometimes an accusation that those of us in progressive religion don't have much to say during a crisis. We can't offer answers that everything works out for a reason. But I would counter that, in fact, we offer some of the deepest presence during those moments. Our memorial services, ethical culture, and Unitarian Universalist alike are the best, I think. Our weddings are the best, and frankly, our baby dedications are the best, too. I just have a lot of progressive religion pride. (laughs) They are the best because they acknowledge the fullness of human experience without trying to pretend that everything is okay or that everything is always joyful. They give us an opportunity to sit with the fullness of who we are and what we feel as humans. Bill Murray, the great Unitarian Universalist humanist theologian who died just a couple of weeks ago, wrote about this in his seminal book of Faith for All Seasons. This is a book about humanism, Unitarian Universalist humanism in particular, and what it offers from a pastoral sense, what it offers to us when we go through moments of crisis or moments of beauty in our lives, moments that call for deep emotions. Murray wrote that, It is our connection to each other that saves us in moments of great loss, that that connection offers an affirmation that life is worth living. I think even deeper than that is our acknowledgement of the complexity of life, our acknowledgement that things don't fit into nice little boxes, that that's just not what it means to be human, to be a person, that instead being human is messy and confusing. Human community is like that too, which is a bummer. Sometimes it would be nice if we were just all little robots in a congregation like this. I often think that. Ministers will sometimes say to each other, I'll let you in on a secret, that our work would be just so easy if only we didn't have the people. (laughs) Perfectly run congregations all the robots doing what we ask them to do. But no, community isn't like that at all. It is filled up with human beings, messy and complex, holding all of the emotional threads in their lives, woven together as it is. The congregation that I serve, I'm sure, like the one that yours is, um, has had goodbyes and hellos that have been joyful and painful. Members of our community we have lost and new members and children we have welcomed in. Sometimes it feels like it is just too much to hold. All those goodbyes and hellos and losses and possibility. And yet it is what life calls us to hold Or anyway, it's what we get in life. The joy of seeing our children grow up and the pain of losing their babyhood. My girls are six and nine now, and I love the elementary school years, but I do sometimes wish that their little toddler selves could come and visit. Just for an hour, really. (laughs) 
just for an hour, couldn't they come and visit? The joy of starting new jobs in new cities and the pain of losing friends. The source of all of this, the joy and pain, the reason we cry at weddings and baby dedications, the reason we laugh at memorial services, too. The source of all of this is our connection with each other. It is because of that connection that the pain of disconnection is so acute. And because of our deep sense of that connection, we are aware of the way that sometimes our own joy is another's pain, just as it was for that adoptive family that day. I don't know if you've seen the movie Evan Almighty with Jim Carrey, you know, Jim Carrey, like, I don't, I don't know really how it starts, but anyway, he somehow ends up being given the job of God. God gives him the job of being God for, I think, a week or so. And um, I, I, presumably it starts out because he says something, you know, ridiculous, like, oh, that would be so easy to do. I could be God, no problem. So, um, so there he is. He's doing God's job, and he gets all of these prayers um, sent to his email inbox, which is actually a convenient way, I guess, to manage it, um, and then finds that his inbox is too full. Do you remember this part of the movie, if you've seen it? His inbox is too full. There's, you know, 400 million unanswered prayers. And so he says, well, this is, you know, I know how to fix this. I'm just going to say yes to all of them. And so he, like, selects all, you know, and then hits not send, but yes, grant, and grants everybody's prayers all around the world. And then you get to the next scene where he finds that there are, you know, 400,000 lottery winners, each of which were able to win half of a cent or something, you know. The problem is that people's prayers, people's wishes conflict with each other sometimes. Our connection to each other, our interconnection in life, and the ways that our hopes and desires overlap and conflict can lead to an intensely painful experience, especially as we know more about the way our world is truly interconnected, the way global economies affect people we will never meet. The connection that causes that pain, though, is also our salvation. I mentioned earlier that in ethical culture and in Unitarian Universalism, in progressive religious traditions and in humanism, there are no pat answers of things working out for a reason. Instead, there is just that acknowledgement that life is messy and hard and that sometimes there is pain woven right through with the joy. And even in all of that, there is the possibility of grace. In fact, to me, something beautiful is even more so when we don't think it's planned out, when instead we see that it grows up unexpectedly, unplanned for, like a wildflower. It doesn't mean that we want those tragic things to happen, but that when they do happen, 
we sometimes find that joy is threaded through them. We sometimes find that we have the opportunity to experience grace that brings connection or love or newness into our lives when we least expect it, that we bring it into each other's lives. We offer that grace. Rumi, the Persian poet, wrote, Sorrow prepares you for joy. It violently sweeps everything out of your house so that new joy can find a space to enter. It shakes the yellow leaves from the bough of your heart so that fresh green leaves can grow in their place. It pulls up the rotten roots so that new roots hidden beneath have room to grow. Whatever sorrow shakes from your heart, far better things will take their place. There's a saying from the Hasidic tradition to the Jewish rabbinical tradition that you read sacred texts so that the words are written on your heart. You know, you read them and memorize them, whatever those texts might be for you, the poetry, the prose of your own soul, so that it is written on your heart. But it is only when your heart breaks that the words can fall inside. Whatever those words are for you, those sacred texts, I think it is in our connection to each other that our hearts work in the same way. I've listened to so many folks talk about sorrow and pain they have experienced and how that same sorrow has opened them up to compassion in a new way, a new kind of understanding of the connection among us. The thread of life is woven fine. Pain and joy, or joy and woe, as the poet William Blake tells us. Laura shared such a beautiful image with our children this morning, the idea of threads connecting us to each other, the interdependent web of life. In ethical culture, we call that concept the ethical manifold, which unfortunately does sound a little like a car part. But it's a beautiful idea, that same one, that we are each connected to each other. We would say, in fact, that I am not fully myself until you are fully yourself. We exist only in the mutuality between us and among us. This is where our justice work comes from, too, from our sense of connection to each other, And for the connection, at least for me, between tragedy and joy, there are so many things in the world that bring me righteous anger, mass incarceration, the treatment of the most vulnerable in this country and around the world. But for me, woven through that tragedy and that anger is the joy of possibility, It is the knowledge that people working together can make a change in the situation that gets my feet moving, my voice ringing out for justice. The joy in the connection between people 
that the same love that connects each of us in this room connects us also to residents at a homeless shelter, from that resident to the person serving them today, that our humanity connects us, a humanity that is joy and sorrow together, the same one that makes us cry at weddings and baby dedications, that sees that life is wonderful and terrible and rich. That connection is both our joy and our sorrow, that which makes us fully human. I close with a poem by Khalil Gibran called On Joy and Sorrow. And I haven't found words that feel truer to me of the unique experience of being human. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. And when you are sorrowful, look again in your heart and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. May it be so for us all. For our chalice extinguishing, please hear these words from Wayne B. Arneson. Take courage, friends. The way is often hard, the path is never clear, and the stakes are very high. Take courage, for deep down there is another truth. You are not alone.
Friends, my wish for you might be that you make your own days glad, as the song tells us, but we know life is messier than that. And so I wish for you threads of joy and woe woven together in grace and beauty. May it be so.